He Descended Into Hell by Jonah Michael Porter, read by the author. Dedication Three very different people have encouraged me to write and finish this book. One was my systematic theology professor at Neshota House, Dr. Andrew Grosso. Another was my good friend Mike Luce, the drummer for Drowning Pool. And finally, my bishop, Kenneth Myers. Dr. Grosso got me excited about starting this project. Mike gave me the encouragement I needed when I felt like quitting, and Bishop Ken ordered me to get off my butt and finish it. Maybe someday the four of us can sit down for a drink together and celebrate it. Introduction The idea for writing this book was born out of a paper that I did for my systematic theology class at Neshota House Theological Seminary. I chose the topic simply because I had been talking with someone about it in passing, and it sort of interested me. As I was writing the paper, I became fascinated by all the different viewpoints of not just the descent, but of hell in general. First off, let me say, I'm no academic. I have a Master of Arts in Ministry, but academic writing isn't my style. I won't use ten words where five will work, and I'll try to avoid words that you may need to look up in the dictionary to understand, although either of those things may occur when I quote other authors. Neither am I an expert theologian. A priest friend of mine told me that we should make decisions on things like the topic of this book by looking at three things, scripture, tradition, and reason, and I try to do this. Some liken these three categories as a three-legged stool, each leg holding up their beliefs. I lean more towards a tricycle approach, with scripture being the driving wheel with tradition and reason keeping me steady. So as we approach this topic, we'll take a look at what scripture says, what the early church, as well as the later church, has to say, and come up with a conclusion that I make that I hope makes some sense. Finally, all that follows, I write with a sense that it's impossible to know definitively some of the things that we're going to talk about. We can look to scripture and tradition and come up with conclusions, but as we'll see, there are many different opinions out there. One last thing, I promise. If I had written this book 15 years ago, I'd have probably written a pretty different book. At a recent ordination I attended, the bishop told the new, the new young priest that if he were doing it right, his outlook on many things would be different in 10 to 15 years than they are right now. Things he thought were majors may turn out to be minors, and things that he thought were really important now may not be so much then. I grew up with a pretty Southern American view of hell. Not quite turn or burn. We added in a lot of Catholic rules and extra steps, but burning forever was definitely in the equation if we did it wrong. Now, I'm not so certain of that. But enough spoilers. Let's get on with this. The Apostles' Creed I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Chapter 1. Descendant ad infernos. He descended into hell. Only four words, 
part of a short but very specific statement of faith. This line in the Apostles' Creed, said in daily prayer in nearly all liturgical churches worldwide, is easy to skip over. The lines before and after, dealing with Jesus' death and resurrection, can easily overshadow these four words. These words, however, are packed with hope and mystery. Prefaced by history, hinted at in scripture, explored in apocryphal writings, debated by the early church fathers and theologians throughout the ages, and woven into liturgies, these words potentially have massive implications for our lives, our afterlives, and our responsibility as the church. Chapter 2. The Day Jesus Was Dead Holy Saturday is kind of a weird day. Nearly every day in Holy Week has a significance tied to it. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. On Maundy Thursday, we recall the Last Supper and Jesus' prayer time in the garden. Good Friday, we remember his death, and on Easter, we celebrate his resurrection. But Saturday? Saturday, we live in this tension between what happened Good Friday and the expectation of the resurrection on Sunday. But try to imagine with me that first Holy Saturday. I'm thinking it probably didn't feel especially holy to the disciples and the friends and family of Jesus. I'm sure all sorts of things were going on in the outside world, some of the disciples possibly freaking out, packing bags and calling up relatives for a place to hang out a while until things cooled off. Some were thinking about the preparations to Jesus' body that they were going to have to make tomorrow. Some were maybe reflecting on the last few years and wondering how things went wrong so fast. Those things don't interest me that much. My question is, what was Jesus doing that day? There's a pretty prevalent thought that pretty much nothing happened. Jesus was dead, laying in the tomb that day. It was the Sabbath, and he was resting. I guess that thought kind of makes sense. Even God the Father rested after creating the world. Surely Jesus deserved a rest after what he just went through. Funny thing, though, a few things come to my mind. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who had been born blind when this man was brought to the Pharisees by his neighbors, the Pharisees were upset with Jesus. They called him a sinner and said that he could not be from God. Why? Because he had healed someone? No, it was because he healed him on the Sabbath. In taking a closer look, Jesus wasn't much of a Sabbath arrester from what we see in the Gospels. In fact, he was frequently at work healing people on the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, Mark 3 and Luke 6 all tell of when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Mark 1 and Luke 4, he healed a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue. In Mark 6, he laid his hands on the sick and healed them. In John 5, he heals the man at the pool at Bethsaida. In Luke 14, he heals a man with dropsy, asking this question, Which one of you will have a son or ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? When he was alive, Jesus was very much at work on the Sabbath, and I think that Holy Saturday was no exception. In fact, I believe, and much of the early church teaches, he was doing just what he alluded to. He was saving lives and rescuing people from a pit. In the Apostles' Creed, which is said daily by liturgical churches worldwide at least twice a day, the eighth line tells us that after Jesus' death, he descended into hell. This line has been one of the most debated lines in the creed for a thousand years. Did Jesus go to hell? Like, 
hell hell? What did he do there? Chapter 3. Gehenna, Shale, Hades, Hell, or Will the Real Hell Please Stand Up? When we talk about hell, what exactly are we talking about? Growing up in a small town in Texas, the threat of hell was used mainly as a weapon of fear by many of our evangelical churches in our area. Turn or burn, get saved or get ready to burn in hell, were commonly heard phrases. Ironically, instead of scaring me straight, all this talk of hell just made me think that it was unavoidable, so I figured I might as well do whatever I wanted while I could. I was told that hell was a place that looked very much like an Iron Maiden album cover, and people seemed to love to tell me that I was going there, either because I wasn't saved, or because I had long hair, or I listened to heavy metal music, or even because I was Catholic. Scriptural references would abound in these descriptions of hell. It was a place of outer darkness, according to Matthew 8.12, a furnace of fire, according to Matthew 13.42, an unquenchable fire, according to Mark 9.43. All of these references refer to Gehenna, which is translated in many Bibles to hell. Gehenna was an actual place, just outside of Jerusalem. It is a Greek word, which, when phonetically translated into Hebrew, is Gehimnon, which means the Valley of Himnon. This valley, once the site of worship of the god Molech, was considered abominable by the Jewish people, and it was turned into the place where refuge and garbage was burned, along with the bodies of criminals. Smoke rose from the place constantly, as the fires there never went out. It was a place that the people hearing Jesus' words would know well, and he talked about it several times, twelve times in the Gospels. The question arises, was he talking about this place, or was he talking about hell? Was he using something they knew intimately to help them understand what turning, God, turning from God felt like? Is Gehenna metaphorically hell or literally hell? There is a split opinion on the matter. Shale and Hades. The word shale occurs in the Old Testament 65 times, 31 times translated hell, thir 31 times grave, and three times pit. In context to its usage as grave, it should be noted that there is a different word, quaver, used 64 times in the Old Testament when speaking of a physical grave into which a person's body is buried. A quaver is an actual cemetery plot, whereas the grave of Sheol is a holding place for the soul, not for the body. It isn't a physical place, per se, with flowers in a gravestone. The Greek word Hades is most often translated from Sheol, and they mean the same thing, a place that departed souls go to after death. Not heaven, and not hell in the fiery, tortury kind of way, but a formless void of a place where souls await their final destination. This is the area we will be talking about the most from here on out. There are many words used to describe this area, and some theologians even divide this area up into regions, but more on that later. Chapter 4. Truth or Myth So we say that Jesus went to hell. While it seems strange at first glance, this is hardly an original story. After all, the concept of a hero figure descending into Hades or the underworld was a common one in ancient times, and also the focus of many myths. They would be stories that many people in the region would be familiar with. 
What makes Jesus' descent any different? The story of Noah and Gilgamesh. Many years ago, I frequented the online bulletin board of the band Drowning Pool. This was in the dark days before either MySpace or Facebook. I met several people in this community, including a girl whose screen name was Submissive. Sub and I used to have a long and often detailed discussions about religion, Christianity in particular. In one conversation, she asked me if I knew of the Gilgamesh flood myth from the epic of Gilgamesh. I had to admit that I had never heard of it. She went on to show me how this story, apparently written much earlier than Moses' account of Noah, parts of it were amazingly similar to the story of Noah. The gods decided to destroy the world with a massive flood, but Gilgamesh, under orders from one of the gods, builds a massive boat and saves his relatives and all the animals that he can. Submissive's contention was that the writer of Genesis just took that story and made it his own. I had never heard such a thing, and it kind of knocked me for a loop. I was early in my Christianity and still somewhat fragile in my belief. I immediately grabbed the book that I was reading more often than my own Bible, Josh McDowell's New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It was an encyclopedia of apologetic material and my most trusted resource at the time. Unfortunately, Josh skipped over this whole controversy. His apologetic on Noah focused mostly on how many days it rained or something. But determined, I kept looking. This was in the very early days of Wikipedia, but I found an article that mentioned flood stories from all over the world. I was amazed. It seemed that every culture from Africa to India to China and even North America had a very similar story. There, is a, there was a worldwide flood. Someone builds a huge boat and saves his family and the animals. Each differ in content and character, but the basic story is the same. Had Moses heard some of these stories? How did the same story end up in North America? Chapter 4 continued. What if the myth points to the truth? My thought became this. What if these myths were true? With so many stories from all over the world so amazingly similar from peoples who had no contact with each other, I wondered if there actually was a flood with a, and a guy who built a big boat and saved all the animals. Noah's story comes in Genesis shortly before the Tower of Babel, where, at that time, it was said that everyone lived in the same valley. This was in direct violation of God's command to Moses to make many descendants and fill the earth. God steps in and scatters the people, confusing their languages. Afterwards, people spread out all over the earth. The flood story would be a common story to every culture born out of this, having happened relatively recently, and over time, names and details may have changed to reflect their new cultures. Or, you know, maybe wasn't maybe Noah wasn't the only person who built a boat. I don't know. Myths about descent. Like the flood story, when we talk about stories in which someone goes to hell and back, there are ancient legends from all over the world with the same theme. Some of these myths predate the Gospels and might have been known to the Gospel writers and those living in the time of Jesus. But there are many others as well. Rather than dismiss the similarities as coincidence, I want to look at how some of these stories I want to look at some of these stories and see how they compare to Jesus' descent into hell. Part one Descents and Other Traditions There is a myth from the Wyandot Indians from North America in which an Indian goes to the land of souls 
to recover his sister. An old man met him and gave him a gourd in which to put her spirit. After some failures, he caught her, and on his return, summoned his friends to witness the revival of her dead body. But a woman opened the container too early, and the spirit flew back to the land of souls. There is a theme here that will become evident in many of the other stories, which is a breaking of a rule or a curiosity getting the better of someone and ruining the rescue. For example, Orpheus travels to Hades to bring back his beloved Eurydice, and Pluto and Persephone agree to let her go as long as he leads her out without looking back. Just as he gets back to Earth, but before she does, he looks back and he fails in his mission. A Japanese story tells of a goddess who dies and goes to Hades. Her husband follows her and to try to get her to come back with him. Unfortunately, she has already eaten some food there, which for some reason is a common forbidden in many myths of the afterlife. However, she tells them that she will try. Her husband waits, and getting impatient, he strikes a light and sees her rotting body. Angry with him, she sends the ugly female of Hades to chase him. He runs off, throwing food behind him, which she stops to eat, allowing him to get away. Not every myth ends in failure, however. Hercules rescues a pair of would-be rescuers of Persephone in his quest to find Cerebus, and Dionysus rescues his mother, Samile, from, ha from Hades as well. It is worth noting that both of these figures are thought to be semi-divine, the offspring of Zeus and a human. Eastern Myths Interestingly, some of the Eastern myths about most closely resemble Christ's descent. The Buddhist legend of Miyoshan, for example, tells of her dying by voluntarily taking all of the negative karma of her executor upon herself in order to relieve him of his guilt. Because of this negative karma, she descends to the lower realms. Witnessing firsthand all of the terrible conditions there, she releases all of the good karma that she had accumulated in all of her lifetimes and turns hell into a paradise. The ruler of hell kicks her out, fearing for the destruction of his realm. In the Hindu story of Yudhisthira, when he gets to heaven, he discovers that many of his relatives are in hell. He asks the gods to permit him to go and get them. When he gets to hell, a cool wind follows him and eases the suffering of everyone there. Realizing this, he decides to stay there to help people. The gods shows up, the gods show up, and he finds that this has all been a test of his faith. Suffering and comfort in hell. These two stories bring up something important and interesting in our consideration of hell and what it is and what it has been throughout the ages. I would dare say that just about every civilization that has ever existed that has believed in an afterlife has their own version of what we would call heaven or hell. They may have a different name for each, but the idea is the same. The good go to the good place and the wicked go to the bad place. Most, most cultures' hells are pretty bad places. If you think that Christians have the market cornered on a terrible afterlife, think again. In ancient Sri Lanka, there are descriptions of torture involving the cutting up of bodies only to be united again in order to be cut up over and over and over. Or you could be boiled in water, pierced with red-hot pokers, squished by giant hot rocks, all kinds of terrible things, mostly involving red-hot instruments. 
Classical Greek hell was not a great place to be either. Virgil, who guided Dante through hell, says that if he had a hundred tongues and a hundred mouths and a voice of iron, that he would not be able to describe all the varieties of punishment available in hell. In Hindu tradition, there are many hells, one being like a pit of hot charcoal. There is the dreadful shrieking hell, the padlock hell, the hell of heated kettles, the hell of red-hot iron, the hell of inverted heads, and many, many more. But the one thing that most of these hells has in common is that they were temporary. Once you went through your punishment, you were either set free to be reborn, or you could cease to exist. The torture may last a long time, but it was not eternal. We do find this, however, in most of the common versions of the Christian hell. You may be asking yourself, what is the point of this section? Well, I'm trying to get there. The point is this. Nearly every religion has a hell where horrible things go on, yet nearly every culture also has stories of someone coming to hell to ease the pain of those trapped there. We saw two of these stories in the last chapter. There are many more, mostly of the same type. A good person goes to hell in varying ways, and while there, they relieve the suffering of those imprisoned there, annoying the creatures who work there. There are two ways that I look at this. One is to take religion out of the picture and note that humans seem to want to make sure that evil is punished, if not in this life, then in the next. But we seem to want to hedge our bets a little bit, just in case we accidentally end up there too. In which case, we really hope for some kind of easing of the pain or even escape. The other way of looking at it is that maybe God didn't really take delight in torturing people for eternity for something they did in a finite time while here on earth. Maybe God hasn't forgotten forgotten them or cast them aside. Maybe there is a way out. Let's come back to that later, though. Chapter 4, Part 3. Early Church Response. The similarity of these other descent myths and Jesus' descent could be seen as problematic to some. In fact, in the second century, a Greek philosopher and opponent of early Christianity, Celsus, pointed out that the similarities of the doctrine of the descent and these mythological stories, inferring that the event was nothing more than just another myth. Origen points out to him that Jesus was publicly crucified in the sight of the Jewish people, died, and later appeared to many. These were not mythical statements, but facts. Celsus also thought the idea of Jesus preaching to those in Hades was ridiculous, as he could not even convince those still living to follow him, let alone the dead. Origen pointed out that many did believe Jesus' teaching. As a matter of fact, it was the primary cause of the plot to kill him. I don't know how Celsus responded to that, but I do know, and we will see more of this as we go, that opinion varies quite a bit from theologian to theologian on what actually happened, or if it even did. In summary, as we've said, you do not have to look far in most cultures which have a code of ethics that reward the faithful and punish the evil in the afterlife to find stories of heroes or demigods going to rescue those they feel may have ended up in the wrong place unfairly. The most significant Jesus, I mean the most significant difference in these myths and Jesus's descent is that the heroes of these stories visit Hades either by a trance, a dream, or traveling there as a living person, while Jesus died, descended, and then returned as a living person, and his trip there had possibly lasting implications for everyone since, not just those that he rescued at the time. 